0: As we continue here on from the press box to press row, and that's why I really love doing this show. And we've, as you guys know, we've been doing it for eight and a half years now because we're able to have persons like my next guest who played 19 years in the major leagues, was a first ballot Hall of Famer, won two World Series championships, his 938 career stolen bases at the time he retired in 1979 was a record he's a six-time all-star won the naia national championship with the southern jaguars back in 1959 currently of course a spring training instructor and and still with the st louis cardinals organization as we are joined by the one and only lou brock here on from the press box to press row mr brock it is indeed a pleasure welcome to the program
1: well, thank you. Nice talking to you today, and looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely, and like uh, like Kevin Hart says, we gonna learn something today. So <laughs> <laughs> let, let let me start here because w- with the game today, and you know, you, I talk to a lot of of baseball people, and and they say that the game is is the same today as it you know as it was sort of back in the day. I guess from a fundamental standpoint, but I I would say that. I don't know that we'll ever see anyone have 118 stolen bases like you had. I think the game is changing that way, more of a power game in terms of home runs. Is that a fair assessment?
1: That's a fair assessment in as, in as much as uh, it is controlled basically by the size of the ballpark nowadays uh, rather than uh, instituting the stolen base as a weapon to uh, further the game that cause your winning calls so big bigger ballparks bigger ballparks simply means that the uh, power alley in ballparks are shorter today much shorter by 30 feet than they were uh during my day
0: sure and it lends
1: itself more to the home run
0: no no question about it um and i want to talk more with you because in reading some stuff i mean i know I mean, the people know you more so, I would say, as a as a, a man that stole a bunch of bases. But I think, you, you know, a lot of people don't know you had that home run power. Plus, you were an outstanding hitter. And we'll talk more about that in your capacity still with St. Louis. And, and, and again, St. Louis falling in, in the World Series on last year, but winning back in 2011, a successful franchise uh, even before you played the time you played and since then. What is it like in spring training? What's kind of the mood like coming into this season for the Cardinals?
1: Well, I would say expectation is really high in as much as ballplayers, uh, in a sense, like to challenge each other. Uh, I think the Cardinals traditionally have had a winning spirit, whatever that. Is. When ball players put on a Cardinal uniform, they, they basically feel 10 feet taller and that in itself helped the ball club out, and that had been going on for years. And one of the reasons you stand 12 feet tall or 10 feet taller is that you're playing with teammates that won't beat themselves. you got to go out and beat them. And much like the Yankees and the Dodgers, there's a pride in that uniform itself that uh, propels players to to another level, to another higher level of
0: play. And, you know, Mr. Brock, I mean, it's it's been, what, now the third season since Albert Pujols signed, of course, with the Angels. Uh, and what kind of effect has that had? I mean, the fact of the matter is, even though that has since happened and it's now been going into the third season, the Cardinals has have still been very successful, again, making it to the uh, the World Series last year. How much of an effect has that had, uh, again, I know we're three years now, but but with him ne- uh, having left a couple of years ago the St. Louis Cardinals organization.
1: Well, actually, Albert was one of the premier players in baseball and perhaps in the uh, top ten of all times. Uh, when I say top ten as a hitter, there's a lot of arguments on that. But the fact is that he was a a player you could depend on. And so when Albert uh, opted to leave St. Louis, we needed a player who could probably play 80%, produce about 80% of what did. And we found that guy. His name was Carlo Beltran. Uh, so 80% playing at the level of, of Pujols actually meant that you had a pretty good ball club. And all you need, like most pitchers, more I should say like more ball clubs, is pitching. And so we were fortunate to find a couple of strong arms they didn't know how to pitch, but, man, did they know how to
0: throw. That's the voice of the great Lou Brock, who joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. And as I stated before, uh, you going to learn today as, uh, again, Lou Brock, of course, attending Southern, if you didn't know that, winning, in case you all didn't know, winning the NAIA National Championship back in 1959. We'll talk more about that. Uh, and and when I say that Mr Brock in terms of learning something I I mean it, it, again you know your last season was 1979 I was five years old then so I I, I I understand a bit of the history of the game but never really saw you play didn't even know you know that you had been with the Cubs a couple of years before St Louis what were those days like uh with the Cubs for you
1: Actually, they were like boot camps. Uh, I hate to put it that way, but that's about what it was. I was learning how to maneuver my way around the big leagues and trying to become acclimated. Most of the time, a, a kid come up to the big leagues. he got about three years to prove, prove himself. Uh, In that third year with the Cubs, I was traded. I had already begun to uh, hit the ball, hit the ball well. And the defining moment every ball player has a defining moment that actually actually, he gathered that I can now play with these guys. Uh, once that is assessment is made, uh, you're going to be okay. That happened to me as a Cub. It just manifested itself down in St. Louis, and everybody thought it was the food in St. Louis that caused a difference. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, I had reached that that point where – I can now play with these guys. Once that assessment is made, uh should on your way.
0: Well, what was that? Defi- I mean, it, it, was it a specific, you know, in a specific event? Uh, a, a hit, a stolen base, a home run? What, what, what exactly defined that moment for you when you realized I can play in the major leagues?
1: Well, I, well when, I just, when, when I found out I could play with these guys, actually, it was a fly ball that was hit to right center field that. We hit to some distance by Vader Pinson. That was a player named Vader Pinson had speed. He could run with the best of them. And Vader hit a line drive towards right center field, and I uh, decided to challenge the ball. Went up against a 14-foot wall to catch it. And if I didn't catch it, Vader Pinson, one of the fastest men in baseball, not only had a double, but now we get a home run because Brock challenged the ball. And as I went up against the wall, came down, looked for the ball, no one pulled a well, didn't catch it. Bader was running as though the ball was out of the ballpark. Uh, he had seen the ball roll around in, in the outfield. uh I decided to uh, look for the ball. <laughs> and as I was looking around, frantically looking, 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 the fan says to me, if you look in your glove, you may find it. <laughs> and I was a little teed off at the pen because that was sort of a, a ridicule. And, uh, but I had no choice. There was I could find the ball. The ball was not in the stand. Where did it go? And I looked at my glove and that was it. And I began to laugh and I laughed from from the wall all the way to the dugout. And that was the, the defining moment that said, I now can play with these guys. And from that day forward, uh, I began to hit 300-plus for the next uh, 17, 18 years.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. That is a great, great story. Now, with the Cubs, so now were you, uh, as we we had, of course, uh, on the program uh, some years ago, I guess some eight years ago or, or so, Uh, the late Buck O'Neill. Now, was he, was he, he was a coach in Chicago when you were there. Am I right about that?
1: Well, Buck and I, uh, our history go back to Southern University when I was about 19 years old. Buck, he used to scout that area and just stop in at Southern University every year and watch the team play. And uh, one day, Buck came in and I had a pretty good day against Wiley College. And Buck gave me his. uh, uh, scouting card, calling card with his name on it. It says Major League Baseball. Uh, a few years later, I was signed by Buck and Buck and I have always uh, in fact, he adopted me as his son. He used to take me out <laughs> at Southern University to to uh, five-star restaurants and he said to me, he said across to me, he said this is a fork, it goes on this side of the place. <laughs> and uh, up to there, thinking, that why is this man telling me that? And then one day he said, you know, you just may make the major leagues. And uh, three years later, I was. I did make the major leagues. Buck was named the first black coach in that period of time because the curve brought him into the big leagues to be my roommate, that I would make some of these adjustments that needed to be made to become a big league ball player. So Buck and I go way back. I named one of my kids after Buck, so he has been in my life ever since I was 19
0: years old. That is awesome. We are talking with the great Lou Brock here on From the Press Box to Press Row. We're going to step aside, take a break, come back. We're going to talk more about Mr. Brock's days at Southern University and, of course, his time as a player with the St. Louis Cardinals, which included six All-Star games and two World Series championships. More with Lou Brock here on From the Press Box to Press Row after this. Okay, Mr. Brock, stand by. Okay. Again, you're tuned into From the Press Box to Press Row. I'm your host, Donald Ware. We're talking with the great Lou Brock, of course, a first ballot Hall of Famer, still very active in Major League Baseball and with the St. Louis Cardinals. And, you know, Mr. Brock, I was reading where you originally – uh, and, and it's it's your, your story is so fascinating because you didn't start playing at least what I was reading. You didn't start playing baseball until you were in the 11th grade that going to Southern University. You weren't even going there to play baseball. You were going to uh, on a on an academic scholarship. And I want to talk more about that. But when you were traded from Chicago to St. Louis, uh, originally, though, you you wanted to play for St. Louis anyway, even before you started playing for the Cubs. Am, am I right about that?
1: Well, St. Louis, uh, I, I'm on a cell phone, Dan. I didn't quite get that last question.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I was just saying, am I right about the fact that you wanted to play for St. Louis, the Cardinals, long before you uh, even started playing Major League Baseball? So when the the trade came from the Cubs to St. Louis, you you probably were sort of excited about it, right?
1: Well, I, I don't know if that was before the draft. There was no draft in baseball. A uh, ball club that chose the ball player, and they went out to see if sign him. If Two or three ball clubs uh, chose the same player, and then there was a the war on as to who was signing. Uh, the Cardinal had the lead and uh, the in my case. I was brought into St. Louis by the St. Louis Cardinal to work out. And prior to signing the uh, professional professional baseball contract. However, when I got to St. Louis, the scout was in Washington, state of Washington. He's signing up a guy named Ray Washburn, pretty good pitcher. And I didn't know anybody in St. Louis, so I got back on the bus and went to Chicago and worked out. And the Cubs signed me before the scout in St. Louis to get back in touch with me, so... That's how it happened, and that's why most people think that uh, uh, I was destined for the St. Louis Cardinals.
0: Yeah, no question. And maybe if that doesn't happen, maybe you don't have the career that you have. Those two years in Chicago, as you mentioned, made you the the ball player that you that you ultimately became, and, and allowed you, and like you said, hey, I know I belong. First year in St. Louis after the trade. I mean. What a what a I mean what a storybook sort of situation because the fact of the matter is you guys win the World Series you were a very integral part of that World Series championship in 1964 and, and along the way uh, you got to uh, do well against your former team the Chicago Cubs.
1: <laughs> well, one of the things that people don't don't, don't realize, and I, I should say I didn't realize. I came into baseball with Chicago playing all day games and which was something I did at Southern University. But uh, in Chicago, everybody played night ball, big league, except the Chicago Cubs. And I played center field, which was a sun field. And believe me, uh, Donald, that was no sun field at Southern University. <laughs> when, the ball, when the ball was hit, you did not look in the sun first and then try to find the ball. But well, that happened to me in Chicago. It was a real setback. Uh, but I could always hit. And I hit some long home runs in Chicago. Had some, what I thought, turbo years would have bad. If it was playing today, there would be good years when you hit 260. Uh, but when I got to St. Louis, uh, there was no strong feel, Like, wow, this is basically baseball at its best. And so I was around hitters like Kurt Flood, Bill White. Stand Musial, Red Team Deans, and unlike Chicago. Chicago had a pretty good hitter, Billy William and Ernie Banks and Santos. So all teams got pretty good hitters. But those in St. Louis sort of uh, uh, welcome you in a nice way. We, we got you because we want you. So those always happen when you do get traded, your stock value goes up at that moment, It's up to your performance, whether it stays there or not.
0: Absolutely. Now, what did it mean in that first year? Well, let, let me back up. Let me let me let me actually back up because I also was reading where, um, you know, you were so fast, but you seem to be be a be a man that could really hit for power and really hit home runs. Obviously, we know you have the average. Did you kind of you know, was your game changed in a sense? Uh, to more of a of, of of a guy that really got a lot of hits and hit less for power because of the speed that you had, especially early in your career. Is that? Am I right about that? How how did that transpire?
1: Well, you're right. That was uh, that was a struggle for me. I I, I could hit ball like Billy Williams at the Cubs. I could hit him as far. In fact, I had hit a 500 foot home run as a Cub out of the Polo Grounds in New York. And only Babe Rook and a guy named Luke Easter had hit one out to that part of the ballpark. So these were signs and tales and wonders that said I had some power. Uh, so stolen bases growing up in the South. Stolen base was for uh, a guy who couldn't play well. Uh, he was a guy that you put in right field and gave him a set of instructions. If the ball hit to you, do not pick it up until it has stopped rolling. So we, that was the stigma of first stolen base, and I get to the big league, and they say, we want you to become a base killer. Oh wow! Right. Are you kidding? <laughs> so anyway, to make a long story short. I fought that for about three years. Uh, if I can continue the story, I got traded to St. Louis, and the manager said, "We need somebody on our ball club who can match Maru Wills of the Dodgers, and if we were to find that guy." there is no question we will win a pennant and we think that guy's you and i just said to him point blank sir i don't steal bases i'm not a base stealer and he said let me repeat i'm looking for a guy who can do these things like marty wills we think it's you if you can't steal bases then we had to look for somebody else so now is that guy you so i said yes <laughs> 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 and great. that year I went on to have the best year I ever had at a bat. had took hit some more. But, but the fact was that they did need a base stealer just to compete and win. And we, so that was the hardest test that I have. How did you come against all those things that you didn't want to do as a ball player? Play right there, be a base stealer and have the stigma. And now you go to the World Series based upon your legs and those kind of things.
0: Wow, the great Lou Brock joins us here on the program. And and then getting back to the World Series again, just being traded, helping St. Louis to win, uh, obviously one of the great uh, major league league teams. Uh, What was that like, winning that World Series championship in 1964 again, essentially just being traded from the Chicago Cubs.
1: Well, when it got to the works, I really actually were playing, playing the mighty Yankees. <clears throat> that was the last year of their dynasty. Uh, they came into St. Louis. We, we had a pretty good ball club, and we knew we could play with them. Uh, we weren't so sure our pitching could hold up, but uh, we had a guy named Bob Gibson who could pitch with two days rest, which nobody knew about. Uh, he wasn't great in those two days' rest, but he had enough to beat any ball club. So we rode Bob Gibson all the way, and, and, and a lot of players rose to the occasion. Uh, I uh, had a pretty good uh, World Series, a bad 300. By the way, uh, I have the highest batting average in World Series history in 21 or more games at 391. So I, I, could, I could hit the ball sure. if the ball was thrown. So <laughs> I didn't have a problem there. I just had a problem, could we Could I be on base enough to write the fuse to enthusiasm in a game that would cause us to win? Uh, that was always my challenge.
0: Wow. The great Lou Brock joins us here on the program. By the time, Mr. Brock, you entered the major leagues, 1961, your first full season in, in 1962, Jackie Robinson had been had broken the color barrier some 14, 15 years previous those early days and throughout your career you can speak on it throughout your career but particularly those early days 14 to 15 years into the major league by when the color barrier was broken what was that like for you what was that like for black ball players at that time
1: I may have been in the third generation of players that come in the black players to come into major league baseball. Uh, certainly Jackie Robinson. Then uh, right behind that, four years later, there came Willie Mays, but Dunn Newcomb and, and uh, Roy Capanella all came in in 1947. Then another uh, wave came in in 1951, you go Black. And then five years later, you pick up Hank Aaron and and and, and uh, Ernie Banks and that crowd. Then six to one. Uh, then there was the Brock group that came in. Uh, and, and so the tension, racial tension hadn't gone away, but it had lessened to some degree. And therefore what Jackie Robinson went through, I would say 90% of us in that third wave didn't go through that. Uh, By that time, uh, acceptance, is there a, a word or not? But, uh, you know, accepting is one of those things I'm going to play with you because I got no choice. Well, that had begun. Take Roots, and that's what I was caught up in. So I, I started out in St. Cloud, Minnesota, all-white town, and I saw two black people. And I had just come right. from Southern University in Baton Rouge where he saw nothing but black people. Right. So that was a shock for me, a culture shock. Uh, that I had to get over. So it had nothing to do with whether I could get over it. that kind of thing or not. It just I was thrust in it, and if I was going to make the big leagues, uh, I had to uh, make that adjustment.
0: And I asked that question, and it, it sort of sets up the next question because you know all the things that we read about, you know how how great a, a player that Ty Cobb was. We read also that he was in fact, a racist. And the the fact of the matter is you broke his his record of the most stolen bases of all time in 1973. What did that mean to you at that time?
1: Well, it had a lot of meaning to me. Thank, uh, but I, I was one of those players, believe it or not, there's several players in the big leagues that lived under the threat banner. I mean, you would threaten if he did this, threaten if he got this. I mean, these were real threats pac uh record was no different. It brought on a, a threat and uh, so then you as a person began to challenge that threat to see if that would come true and once you're aware of on a daily basis there were security guards and bodyguards all around you and you just had to play baseball. So I got a taste of what Jackie Robinson must have gone through. But by the same token, these Thing only came when you were challenging some major record that people didn't want broken. And we saw that in Hank Gehring. And we see that even today when players come out and challenge baseball historical records that have deep meanings.
0: The great Lou Brock joins us here on from the press box to press row. Let's take a pause for the cause. Come back. We'll wrap it up in our last segment with Lou Brock and talk about his days at Southern university. You're listening to from the press box to press row. Okay, Mr. Brock, stand by. Okay. Welcome back to from the press box to press row. As we continue our conversation with the great Lou Brock and, Mr. Brock, before we we talk about Southern, one last thought about your playing days. And you you mentioned Bob Gibson and he was, you know, such a great pitcher. How how great? Because I think a lot of times when we look at the history of baseball, sometimes, at least from where where I sit, and again, never having seen him play, Bob Gibson seemed to have have been in, in the history of things more of an underrated pitcher when you go back and we talk about now some of the great pitchers how great a pitcher was bob gibson
1: bob gibson could have pitched in any generation any time in the history of baseball uh he could throw hard he threw just as hard as your nolan rhymes and uh, when i say that he throws through the ball somewhere between ninety five hundred miles an hour and the amazing part of it he could maintain the stamina throughout a ball game uh, most players start to of get tired, pitchers get tired about the seventh inning, and then here comes their second win. But Bob, uh, by the time he got to his second win, uh, <laughs> the game was over. Uh, he was one of those guys that pitched real fast, and he used to say, I'm going to pitch today an hour and 59 minutes. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so an hour and 59 minutes, he struck out about 10 or 12, and he pitched a one nothing ball game, and we were gone. Uh, so he he was a fantastic person, and you need the the kind of drive that Bob had. You had you don't see very much in the big leagues today, and that was a drive to win at all costs within the bounds of fair play. Uh, he was just outstanding in that area.
0: Now, of course, let's talk about Southern University. And now you went to Southern. You didn't go to, and as I mentioned, you didn't start playing baseball until the eleventh grade, but. You didn't go to Southern to play baseball. You went on an academic scholarship, right?
1: Yeah, I did. And I, let me correct you. I, I actually I started playing in the ninth grade. Okay. Uh, the coach started to line up all the freshmen in uh, high school and whoever won a throwing contest got to be his pitchers, which he needed one pitcher. So I won the contest and I was on the team in high school. And But the 11th grade – I found out I could hit, and about the end of that, I also had some good grades in chemistry and math, and off to uh, Southern University with an academic scholarship. That I had to maintain a B average, and got there and maintained a C plus average, kicked out of school (laughs) with a C plus average, and I gotta tell you that I thought it was unfair, unfair to the degree I had a C plus average, guys in Athletics had a C-plus average, and they were in school, and I'm out. And so I just followed the boys and tried for the baseball team, see if you can be a walk-on. And uh, all that came to pass.
0: Man, what? so what were those days like at Southern playing baseball? I, I will talk more specifically about the NAIA National Championship, but just in general, those days at Southern playing baseball.
1: Well, my entree, for an example, I told you I was a walk-on. I was out watching the ball club for about two weeks trying to decide whether or not I could uh, get the coach's attention to tell him I could play baseball. And uh, I never could muster up the courage to do such. And a little boy came up to me one day and said, with a glove, pounding in his glove, I'm going to chase baseball for the teams. Jumps out on the field, crossed the white line, which I had been looking at for about two weeks. (laughs) <laughs> and the kid is chasing balls, the players like him, they pat him on the head when he gave them the ball. Uh, so I decided to join the kid. And one day, uh, chasing fly ball, giving the balls to the players, I, I passed out from exhaustion. And then the coach came to me and the trainer. Rather than said, roll him off the field while laying on the ground, I, I heard the coach say, get up, kid, and take five batting practice swings. And I actually thought he was talking to the kid that was with me, my companion chasing fly balls. But anyway, he was talking to me, I got up and uh, with wobbly legs and all and uh, hit three out of five out of the ball park and I was given an athletic scholarship right there on the spot. So that's where I was recognized (laughs) as a ball player in college uh, on on my back.
0: Like Kevin Hart said, you gonna learn today. That's that is an awesome story. Nineteen fifty nine. So that's the year that uh, that Southern won the NAIA national championship. And it, I, if 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 I've looked over this thing correctly, it may have been the only time at least since then that an HBCU has won a national championship in baseball. What what was that year like? And then ultimately winning that NAIA national championship.
1: Well, the NAIA championship uh, had never invited a black school to that tournament. We were the first ever to be invited, and uh, so we got there, and we planned to host uh, college with a Sir Ross State uh, in Texas, and uh, we won that game, and we actually had to – Band together, if you want to say such a thing. Band together as a team. We knew uh nobody wanted us there. But somehow, when we beat the favorite, uh, we became the favorite. And now, it was this game, the game, the game, the game. And at the end of the, that tournament, when the dust had settled, uh, we had won the championship. Uh, I recall hitting a three-run homer. Uh We were down, the, like, three to one, two men on. I hit a three-run home over center field fence and then top of the ninth. And after that, we were champion. Wow. So it happens so fast when you talk about those kind of things. When you enter those, uh, you know you, you're there to play your strength within, within yourselves, uh, which was all right, guys. And uh, we just banded together and, and decided to uh, show them what we could do.
0: And then, lastly, Mr. Brocken, we appreciate the, the the time you've been so gracious that you've given us here on From the Press Box. To Press, presser, of course, we're joined by the great Lou Brock. Uh, the commissioner uh, has put together a, a task force to study why or how to get blacks back in baseball. Of course, the current head coach of Southern, Roger Cador, is part of that uh, part of that uh, that that study. Your thoughts? Because. The the, the the fact, from what I've seen, in, especially in the north, the more north you go, the less that blacks are playing baseball. But when you look in the south, especially, you can look across the SWAC. I mean, it's a a lot of most of the SWAC teams have black ball players. Uh, maybe they're not obviously not getting to the next level in terms of major league baseball. What is it that we need to do? Why is there such a lack of of blacks in baseball? And what do we need to get what? needs to be done to get it back to the level that it once was
1: well number one we got to 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 um, to institute the institution of baseball back into the black community right now that institution where people pour money into academies and these kind of things uh used to be in a black community now they're in south america and uh taiwan and in Japan and Australia, so a lot of money is poured into those countries in the development of ball players. In the black community, there is no money poured in for the development of ball players, and so as a consequence, is it, one of those things that uh, if I can't develop you, how are you going to play? So there's nothing against the black player; is that the the that the economics is against him. Now, number two, that is against most black players is that in America, there's something called the title eight rule, pardon me, whereby a ball player has to, can't go professional, can't go pro until his class graduates. In America, we're about 18, 19 years old when that happened, other countries, those kids can go pro at age 15, 15, 16. And so they get a chance to play from 16 to 19 years old where the development of your skill happens in baseball. They can do that while we are still in school. And when we get out of school, those guys generally from other countries, you got about a three-year lead on you. And believe it or not in baseball, if you hadn't shown what you could do at age 23, chances are you're not going to get much better. And so we're behind that kind of a dilemma. I don't know whether baseball one day may say players from other countries got to be 19 years old before you can get here. Or does the education rule here allow players to become pro at 15 years old, 16 years old, uh, prior to his graduating class. That, to me, is the major issue that we have to overcome.
0: Very well said. Uh, of course, joined by the great Lou Brock here on From the Press Box to press for our first ballot Hall of Famer, two-time World Series champion, six-time All-Star, of course, winning the NAIA National Championship with the Southern Jaguars Back in 1959, uh, even though I know Ricky Henderson has the record, the probably the greatest base stealer of all time. And, Mr. Brock, we appreciate the time you've given us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Continued success with the Cardinals, and we'll talk with you real soon.
1: Well, thank you much, and I've enjoyed it.
0: Okay, excellent. I, I, I really do appreciate and learned, 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 a, learned a whole lot. And I know my listeners will. Um, we're gonna. This will air on um, on Friday, uh, and I, I think I sent you the link to to our website and all of that. So um, yeah,
1: yeah. And then listen, I apologize for the the long answer at the end there, but uh, until people understand that there is no money pumped into us, right. uh, it's hard to find something out of it. And uh, and where that emphasis is being put these days, and that throw us about uh, four years behind the curve.
0: Right. No, 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 because I, I mean, I wanted people to get it from your I mean, I've talked with I mean, I've talked with Frank Robinson about this Ron Washington. I mean, I've talked with a bunch of people. So now I wanted to get mm-hmm. your perspective. So no, 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 that's fine. It, 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 you, you weren't long at all that, you know, this this was this was great. So um, so I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I don't know if St. Louis will be hosting the the all star game, but uh, maybe, you know, I get to, I don't know if I'll get to say that was the only time I had actually been to St. Louis before and since. Uh, but uh, hopefully, I can get to St. Louis and I'll uh, and I'll look you up.
1: Okay. Well, as I say, I hang around a lot at baseball, to do the commission officer office and all star games and World Series. I'm generous there. Okay. Uh, so uh, this year's in Minneapolis. So not too many people go there. Right. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where it is. Absolutely. Uh one thing I want I want to say you may as a side note what, what, what 3000 hit that we've, which we didn't mention.
0: Right. We did.
1: Um that is probably a high water mark that most players like to get to. Right. And that's only been 28 of them inside of uh, 17,000 men. And so those are the accomplishments. Right. That's and right. I got one other the subject matter at some time, if you can. Okay. No, go, I am. Go ahead. I, I, I am researching what I call the pitch. This is Jackie Robinson, first at bat to become validated as a major league baseball player. And there's a pitcher on the mouse so who's going to throw this ball to validate him. But because the validation is not certain where the pitch out of the hand of this pitcher, is going to be a baseball uh, missile. And so when it doesn't, it comes out as a baseball rather than a missile, the history has now turned over in Major League Baseball for the first time. Uh, that's a subject matter that uh, I think needs to be told by, uh, by us some kind of way.
0: Okay, so no, now, now, okay, so now that's something you're, you said that's something you're studying or?
1: Yeah, well, I'm looking into it and the dynamic or the impact of that pitch. Okay. So the pitch by itself, running on the field didn't, didn't validate Jackie Robinson. What validated him when he came to bat.
0: Ah, gotcha. Got
1: yeah, you. so he was validated not as a um, black man trying to play Major League Baseball if that pitch come in as a baseball, he has been validated as a major league baseball player. Right. Without color. Right.
0: Right. Right. No, you're right. You're right.
1: And the guy who threw the pitch was a guy named Johnny Sane.
0: Johnny, you said Johnny, what's
1: Johnny saying? He pitched for the uh, Boston Braves. He and, uh, well, anyway, there's a history on that. There's a story in that. that never been told. Um, 50, 50 years later in New York, not New York, L.A. time. You may want to look this up. The okay. L.A. time did a story 50 years after the pitch. Okay. Their headline, three-page spread, was the pitch that had a beginning but no ending. No ending. Powerful, powerful story. Powerful, powerful headline. So the question today is, where is that pitch?
0: Ah, gotcha.
1: And some people think, including the uh, ex-president of the Hall of Fame, he said, he said the White House, is in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I gotta tell you, somewhere in that story, I mean, that's a heck of a story, is how does a man, in a defining moment, become a major league baseball player, validated by his peers? Man, that's That's deep. That's a subject matter.
0: No, it is deep. And and one of the things we didn't talk about, uh, I could just ask you. Now, I I was reading about uh, when you got, and you're right, and I'll make sure to mention that you had the career uh, 3,023 hit. Um, When you got the 3,000th hit, so something with Carl Yastrzemski, right? He he was invited somewhere (laughs) or something with that, and you, you weren't, and... And, and, I mean, uh, I I know now. So now it will be all good now. <laughs> President Obama's in the White House now, right? He be, it would be all good now.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, that it was back in 79. And uh, when you talked about being kicked around as a political football, well, that 3,000 hit was at that time. <clears throat> and and uh, it came about because I think Tip O'Neill, uh, Speaker of the House, was from Massachusetts, Yaz, Boston, Red Sox, they decided through Tip O'Neill to invite Yaz to the White House. And uh, when he did, <clears throat> I had not been invited. <laughs> and they had gotten three hits a month before, two thousand hits a month before. And so that became a political football. Why? And Brock, why was Brock not invited? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of things happened. that's a story in itself and so I answered a question one day um, if you were invited would you go and I said I would have difficult at this time not being invited knowing the ass had been invited and knowing that he got 3,000 hits uh, after I did and I just made a comment 3000 hits are the same on the field, but the difference is in the mind of man. Right. Yeah. And so immediately I get a call uh, from the Washington post for a story. So uh, it, it may be, uh, it, it, I thought it got blown out of proportion, but the headline was Brock uh, refused to go to the white house on the back of your bus. Oh, wow. <laughs> man. And Whoa! That started it.
0: Well, let me. Have you? Have you? Have you been to the White House since? Oh, I. That probably. Uh, I've spent a
1: lot of time at the White House. Okay. No matter who's president, President Bush, probably uh, George Bush. Um, uh, probably spent most of the time with him. I ain't never gone to White on Obama at this time, but uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, the Bushes, the. the Clinton, uh, everybody but Reagan. I never went with Reagan. I did get a letter from him and all that kind of thing. Right. But uh, most baseball, most president of baseball fans, Obama happened to be the one that's not. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) He came on the field with us in uh, 2009 All-Star game and he was shaking our hand. Now you got to remember there's a war goes on between St. Louis Cardinals and Chicago Cubs. This is one of the bigger rivalry in in baseball, other than the Yankees, Boston. Our president, President Obama, came out on the field, and he has on a Chicago White Sox uh, warm-up jacket. <laughs> so now he got to walk amongst the Cardinals Hall of Famers, which is about six of us, maybe seven at the time. And we're looking at him with this <laughs> coat on, uh i would not stand in next to bob gibson but he said you know it could be worse he could have a cub on <laughs> a cub jacket
0: <laughs> that's right
1: that's <laughs> it's true right. It's, uh, anyway make a long story short he came through he, he shook hands with everyone and he got to me and i said mr president um uh, you're doing such a good job and um uh one thing uh, most presidents have done uh, in my life. When I meet a president, uh, I usually give them a salute. Uh, you don't mind if I salute you, do you, sir? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And uh, now, Don, this is where it can get a little hairy because everything has been outlined by the Secret Service. This is your action. You know, your hands here on your side, you know, raise them uh, real fast and those kind of things when a president is close to you. so now he's still making salute now I gotta raise my hand real quick and salute and I thought do I raise my hands or don't I? (laughs) (laughs) because you got sharpshooters on the rooftop I mean that's the moment in time that you're standing there and then you finally salute and the next day people want to know why did he salute Brock and not the other Hall of Famers (laughs) and I said "Because," because I asked him for a salute <laughs> so did you? Yeah, were you I, able to?
0: Huh? Were you able to? Yeah,
1: did, did I salute? Yes. Yeah, I did. Yeah, okay. I did. Oh yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh yeah, I could pass that opportunity. I saluted uh George Bush. But George Bush used to salute us in church. He come to and have a whole center section open, and find spots of ball in church and he'd salute, Yes sir. Right. <laughs> this is the church. Right. But all those things happened that day. Yeah, yeah.
0: That is, that's awesome. No, I was actually, I was in the stands. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, I, I mean, I know you played in St. Louis for so many years. But at that time, I mean, those St. Louis, I mean, I was in the middle because of what I was trying to do in the stands. I was on a lower level. I was trying to film uh, President Obama throwing out that first pitch. Man, those St. Okay. Louis fans were vicious, man. I mean, vicious. Vicious. Some of the stuff yeah. they were saying, you know.
1: You, yeah, and they can be in fact, I was supposed to address the team, the pep talk national league, which is a tradition in the national league get a pep talk from somebody um, at the time, I was supposed to address the team over lockdown because President <laughs> Obama went in and dressed both ball club with a little pep talk <laughs> so, I when one lockdown was over, I came in behind him, and I said to the team i'm supposed to give you guys a pep talk i understand the president you got one that no other ball club in history ever gotten and that was a pep talk from the president and so i'm sure that was a proud moment i said but i'm not going to give up i'm about to say here come another pep talk and they all started laughing (laughs) Boy, I can't resist this moment. I'm coming right behind the president. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So get ready for a pep talk. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, uh, you know, players sitting there, I always have an expression uh, done. They get me out of a lot of trouble. And so once I said that, the guys are still looking at me <laughs> with straight faces. I looked at I think Prince and a couple of the players and said uh, – do you have a problem with that? They go oh no, 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 okay then. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so that's uh the old expression that we use with to break the ice. Do you have a problem with that? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. You're just like you're gonna know something after this one. <laughs> <That's>
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh,
1: guys. Oh man.
0: Well, this is... So, been... Thank you for
1: uh, letting me talk for a few seconds, but, uh, uh, but here in spring training, I probably teach some base running, and we basically answer a lot of questions and dot the eyes, cross the T's for a lot of players as a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. So Arthur Smith is in camp, and um, Gipton will be here. Oh. Uh, Red Sheen did have a other Hall of Famer in blue Schu- are yeah, about six of us. We we all come down and spend a couple of weeks.
0: Man, awesome. That is so awesome. I mean, that's got, man, that is that is so awesome. Wow. Okay, well, no, I appreciate it. Like I said, we'll, you know, our, our paths will cross in person at some time. I know the, now you, you typically attend all the All-Star Games. Were you in New York last year?
1: I was in New York.
0: And yeah, there's
1: a thing called Fan Fest. Uh-huh. If you find a lot of Hall of Famers spend time in Fan Fest. we do clinics and pep talks. Okay. Uh, for kids, uh, eight to twelve, and sometimes, but but it's about, about six days of that. <clears throat> so we usually book two. Uh, I'm usually book two out of those three days. <clears throat> Gaylord Perry, Ferguson, Jenkins, uh, a lot of Hall guys that you probably know, you know, they all hang out doing that fan fest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's where we spend our time.
0: <clears throat> okay. Do you do the civil rights uh, game? I see where the – do you do you attend that?
1: I attended the first one. Okay. And uh, after that, <clears throat> they sort of towards towards Hank Aaron. And
0: <clears throat>
1: remember I was talking about the first and second generation of players coming in. Right.
0: Right. Ernie uh, They Banks. lean
1: more towards those players because uh integration uh was the forefront. Right. Uh segregation forefront. So those guys had some real experience in some hotels the food to this or that. And I shouldn't say those guys because I was dispatched to St Cloud, Minnesota. <clears throat> uh I didn't see it because <laughs> there was no black people there. Right. So I got away in the minor league <laughs> without any of those encounters. So uh, I can see the civil rights game is being one day being huge. Um right now I don't know. Right. I don't know. I don't I I don't see people loading up buses in other towns that come to it. You know, like the uh, Jackie Robinson Express used to be, people in the South. Right. They boarded buses to find wherever he played.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're right, and and that's the, one of the things. I, 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 not to hold you, Mr. Brock, but see, that's, I, I, don't think. See, for me, I don't think what Major League Baseball is trying to do is tr- it. It trickles down to the clubs. I mean, a, a show like this, we have a a great reach. You know, you got a black host. We got a black audience. I have a lot Mm -hmm. of problems trying to get a lot of baseball players to come on. I don't I've I can I've gotten a handful like, you know, Brandon Phillips has come on my show. Uh, I had Matt. We were very fortunate to get Matt Kemp a couple of years ago when when he should have won the MVP in 2011. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I don't, I don't just go after black players. I mean, I go after the all, all ball yeah, players, yeah. right. But see, the problem is what major league baseball's trying to do doesn't trickle down to the clubs because this, this, the, the show we have, you should, I mean, you, you got a lot of mainstream stuff like your Tom joiners and, and all of that, but right, they're not, right, right. they're not interviewing mm-hmm. baseball players. I'm trying to get the baseball players and we got a great reach. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're trying to break into the, well, you're doing something that the club should be doing and uh, they don't embrace it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but again, we still need it said. Right. You're right. From a people point of view, we still need it said. That's right. Um, so I, I travel uh, about different cities a year. I, I'm, I'm a spoke person actually uh on diabetes okay one of the diseases for black people that is really really it's tough it's a struggle for us and it's just about one out of every two black person in america which at some point will encounter some kind of diabetes right and diabetes is one of the uh one of the most expensive diseases in in the world, in in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like one out of every three dollars is spent on diabetes. And so when we get into our community and start talking about it, um, uh, they they which mean us, the patient has an attitude, well, it happened, if I go and get some medicine I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I go and get some medicine, that's a struggle in itself. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see that in, in my travel and uh, uh, there's all kinds of, but that diabetes awareness is real, a real issue. Yeah. And uh, hopefully that we can get more and more into the black community Well, uh, it, to do such. Well, now, you... your show, uh-huh. uh, I'm asking a dumb question, but, does it open up for sponsorships?
0: It, it does. That's the thing. I mean, it does. And I, I've had a. be honest with you. I've had a real issue with that, too. Uh, it, it's been very hard. Beca- I think part of it is because maybe we're not on the biggest radio stations in the biggest markets, which is mm-hmm. which is which is an issue in terms of getting sponsorship. But again, we got a great reach to Sirius XM channels. We're on in like 30 stations or something around the country. Um, you know, we're on in D.C. We're on in Pittsburgh. I'm just trying to think of the major league markets we're on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're on in a you know couple of major league markets. But, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, I mean, that's one of the things. I, I mean, that's what I do. I do this. Basically, I'm kind of doing it by myself. I host the show, produce it, put it together. I go out in sales, and that and that's what I do. I mean, I go out okay. and sell advertising. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes, sir.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, well, uh, because diabetes is run rapid in our community, and I just think that there got to be an awareness program somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now across the country, there are very few, if any, uh, with that uh, diabetes thing in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, one of the conditions of diabetes is that it's called numbness, numbness of the extremities. And uh, that means your toes, your feet, and da-da-da. So I make this comment that a man has an extremity that a woman doesn't have, and as a consequence, is numb that too. Mm-hmm. And what we get in our world, the bike world, from that condition is that men will not take their medicine. They claim that medicine is the thing that caused these extremi- extremities to be numb. Mm-hmm. And as a consequent, we have more amputation than any other race in the diabetes, uh, all because of that one thing. And I go, boy, I got to be an awareness out there somewhere. Somebody got to step out there on that issue. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, that's a little, that's a bit, that's another story. <laughs>
0: No, so now are you saying that's what you are you are you? So the talks that you you say you go to fifty cities a year, to and is that you're talking about diabetes? Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I've been in Charlotte. I was there last year. Okay. Um, yeah, that's why I probably I didn't know you, but I knew where you were, right? And I knew the market area generally, uh, but I, I I do know that. That's an issue we we want to pound, and from your point of view, pounding more and more of our sports history into the minds and uh, of, of people that they can get a grasp on where we've been, so we don't make that mistake again. And uh, but 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 it's sort of tough.
0: Yeah, it is. Now, are, are you are you coming to North Carolina? Are you coming to D.C.? Are you coming to Atlanta anytime anytime this this year?
1: I am scheduled again for Asheville um, oh, Asheville okay uh, okay I'm scheduled well for the last three years I've been in Columbus uh, uh, Charlotte uh, where is uh, these are repeats Okay. I've been in about three or four cities uh, in North and South Carolina <clears throat> and this this past season I was in those two states, a lot more than I have been.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, because uh, yeah. parts of Col- uh, part- Columbia is not that far. I mean, I guess my thing is, I'd love to, you know, come speak with you in person if you're going to be somewhere close. I mean, it- are you scheduled to be in Charlotte or Columbia? You said Asheville, but.
1: <clears throat> well, one of them, I don't know exactly, but there is what we call a, uh, uh, <clears throat> a medical fair where people come out and. And look for what's new in the diabetes and what have you. <clears throat> and I think I'm scheduled to one of those this year. Okay. Uh, either in South Carolina or North Carolina.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, maybe maybe I can check in with you every now. Do you do you have do you have an email address or do you mainly?
1: Um- uh, yeah, I, ha- I have an email. Uh, That's just info at lubrock20 dot com.
0: 20. com. Okay. So, w- w- yeah, maybe I'll just check in with you or get your schedule and, you know, uh, I can come to maybe where you are, like you said, if it's in South Carolina. Columbia is maybe three hours from here. It's not, you know, it's not terribly far, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah.
1: All right. We'll just, uh, just stay in touch and maybe, uh, maybe uh, in some of these cities, I know I'm in a lot of them, so uh, on behalf of diabetes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Mr. Brock, it was a pleasure. Thank
1: you. It was a pleasure talking
0: to you. Yes, sir. Take care. You too. Bye now.